Hey, we are in the, the second week of the series uh, Pathways Prime, where we're going through the seven things that, that we believe that, that God has called us to do and, and made us. Uh, week one, last week we looked at intentional. This week we're going to look at culturally current. In the subsequent weeks, uh, we're going to look at hospitality, authenticity, relational, grace, and excellence. And just to bring you up to speed, if you haven't been here or you forgot, we introduced some new images to you guys. And uh, the first image is the new Pathways logo, which has the arrow that we had before. And what that stands for is making, maturing, immobilizing, fully devoted followers of Christ. And then you see the five breaks at the top, and that represents what we believe a fully devoted follower of Christ looks like, and that's loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, and loving others as yourself. And then the, then the other seven on the outside are the seven things that we believe that God has uniquely made our community to live out what he has called us to do. And we show that also in an iCharge logo uh, with the seven in the eye and the little guy charging like that. And um, so when we're looking at this, you know, culturally current, this is one of those kind of values that uh, a lot of people in the religion of American Christianity get tripped up over. That they think, oh, you know, the culture, oh, you know, save us and, and uh, things like that. You know, we've had a tendency to elevate a certain time period or culture in history. Maybe the 50s is the, the pinnacle of Christendom in America. Uh, some others think, you know, maybe it was medieval times. Some have elevated different translations of the Bible and think God is much more comfortable with these and thous than, than the and, what's thou? I don't know. And, uh, you know, different things like that. And we look at, we look at these kind of different things, and, and for some reason, in the culture that we live, we have one set of rules, and then we send out people to, to be the, the conduit of God's love and mercy and grace to other cultures and in, any, in other uh, countries and things like that. And we have a totally different set of expectations. Like you would go to pretty much any church in, in America and if they were sending somebody uh, to Zimbabwe or something like that, that they wouldn't expect them to go to Zimbabwe and to erect, you know, kind of a church, a brick and mortar church with a steeple. They wouldn't expect them to teach all of Zimbabwe English and our capitalist system and all this kind of thing. No, the expectation would be that they would go and do what? They would learn the language, right? They would learn the language of the people that they are with. They would learn the customs and the culture. And they would immerse themselves in that culture. Why? To one day earn the relational right to be able to speak truth into their lives. One um, scripture in Ecclesiastes, I think, really speaks very well into this, this idea. In Ecclesiastes 12, 
we get this idea of, of how we're meant to interact in culture and with people who do not know Christ. Solomon writes this, Because the teacher was wise, he taught the people everything he knew. He collected wisdom, Proverbs, and classified them. Indeed, the teacher taught the plain truth, and he did so in an interesting way. You know, first we have this, this idea of, of, you know what, we are meant to be authentic and, and pour our lives into people, that we are meant to teach people to communicate and connect with them everything we know, everything that we know about God's love, that we are to give that to them that we're meant to collect wisdom and classify it. What's classifying? What, why, when do we classify things? We do that in order to present them in a way that makes sense to people, right? If it's just, you know, if information is completely chaotic, that it, it doesn't resonate with us. So taking wisdom and putting it in a way that will be meaningful to somebody. And then I love the next one is... Then teach the plain truth, and he did so in an interesting way. I think that a lot of times, especially in the religion of American Christianity, we get the first part of that sentence so well, teach the plain truth. And we like to go out and we like to get our big capital T truth and carry it around and beat people with it. And then when they're you know, bloodied with the big T truth, we think, did my job and I gave them the truth. You know, yeah, you really gave it to them and, and you walk away. But scripturally, we're seeing that, you know what? No, we're meant to do the plain truth, but we're meant to do it in an interesting way. Well, what does interesting mean? Interesting to me? No. Interesting to those who are hearing it. That, that, you know what, God has given us the greatest story ever told that God loves us and He is pursuing us. And He will sacrifice in order to give us the opportunity to be in relationship with Him. Even though we didn't do anything to earn that relationship, it is the greatest story ever told. And it is our job to be able to present that in a meaningful and understandable way in the heart language of people. I've had people try to, to insult me personally and say, well, E3, you're just, you know, you just want to entertain people. I'm not smart, so I looked up what entertain means. I was, I was, I was thinking that they... They, they were meaning it, you know, in a negative context. And so I, I looked it up. You know what entertain means? It means to engage and interest and move people. I'm like, hey, heck yeah, I'm an entertainer. <laughs> what, I, what's the, what's the uh, alternative to unengage people, to, to bore them? and to leave them the way they came. I'm sorry, that's a terrible goal. You know, and that is not the goal. The goal is to figure out a way that I can collect, and you can collect when we're out, you know, connecting with our friends, wisdom, and present it in a way that is interesting to our 
listener. And then he goes on and he says this, but my child be warned, there is no end of opinions ready to be expressed. Studying them can go on forever and become very exhausting. What Solomon is trying to warn us here is that, you know what? We can spend all our lives studying the Bible. We can study information that, that we can memorize the Bible. And after we've memorized the Bible in English, we can go and memorize the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. And we can have all of this information. But you know what? At the end of the day, if you never put that into practice in your culture in an interesting, compelling, entertaining way, then it was for naught. That's why we like to say that the value of today is, is what lives beyond it. If you all come here today and you hear Tim's story, you hear uh, what God's put on my heart, you 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 hear some of the musical worship and you participate in that, and then you walk and you out and you are unchanged and the world is not changed because of what happened here today. It was all for naught. And then he finishes this, this. Here is my conclusion. That's how I know that he was finishing. <laughs> Fear God and obey his commands, for this is the duty of every person. Are you a person? Yes, you are a person. And so this is our duty to fear God. What's fear God? Respect God for who he is. Respect him as being all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God. Respect God. Okay, respect God and obey the commands he has given us. What are the commands? The 613 laws of Moses? No, we're not under the old covenant we are under a new covenant, a covenant of love. That covenant, Jesus told us, here are the commands. Love God holistically. Love people. Those are the commands. Go out and do that. Now, Jesus is probably the best example of, of a very culturally current speaker. He was very entertaining. He was very engaging. He was very interesting to, to the, the people who were coming and hearing him. He would take these eternal truths and he would connect them with daily activities that people were engaging in and reveal the larger meaning to them. He would talk to Shepherds about sheep and farmers about farming and women at the well about welling or water and, and different kinds of different things. You know, he, he didn't talk to people about things that they did not care about. And somewhere along the line that, that we've taken the... the the greatest story and the greatest principle ever told that there is a loving God who wants to have a relationship with us and he is willing to embrace and forgive all our transgressions so we can experience that. And we have downplayed that and elevated sheep and farming and water. So much so that I have heard language through my life that, that 
people will elevate and they will talk about people who are sitting in an internet cafe about farming, people who've never been on a farm in their life, or they, they will say things like, well, have you been washed in the blood of the lamb? What are you talking about? You know, they're Googling it, washed in the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? If Jesus was walking physically around right now, and he was in the coffee houses, he would be talking about coffee and different things like that. And he would be connecting those with eternal truths. That's what he would be doing. And I wanted to just talk about and see an example of this that I think is a beautiful example in Scripture. It's in uh, Luke chapter 15. You may want to turn there. And Jesus is trying to convey a principle. He wants to convey to his listeners how much God loves people and, that the, and the lengths that he will go through to bring people into relationship with him. Now, Jesus had two things that he could have done. He could have got up and he said, we could say, God loves you. He'll go to great lengths to be in relationship with you. Thank you very much. He could have done that. But he chose to go a different route. In fact, he chose to tell three stories. Let me kind of unpack the context of what's going on. In verse 1, tax collectors and other notorious sinners, not just regular sinners, but notorious sinners like Tim, often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people. Even, I don't want to scare anybody, eating with them. Yes. So, here we have the religious rulers of the day and they're all upset because Jesus is hanging out with notorious sinners and, and tax collectors and all these people. So Jesus decides, I'm going to tell you some stories. And he's telling these stories because he wants to teach them something in a culturally current, interesting way. Now, it's not going to be culturally current to us, but I'm going to unpack that a little bit and hopefully bring some context to it. The first story that he told, he said, look, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that was lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it, carry it on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors and say, rejoice and have lamb dinner with me. No, he would say rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Religious people hate this story. They absolutely hate it because it's not fair. Because you have the 99 good sheep us, 
And then you have the one stupid sheep that wanders off, doesn't know what it's doing, and what does the shepherd do? The shepherd leaves the 99 obedient sheep, unprotected. There's wolves out there, sheep stealers, all sorts of, you know, bad things, bad things, sorry. (laughs) Come on, I should not get my biggest laugh ever off of that joke. unprotected, and he goes off to find that one. And it makes us mad. But Jesus is trying to paint a picture about who God is and how much he loves even just one of us. And when we go astray, he goes on to the next story. And remember, he's talking to the religious rulers of the day. He is, he is talking to, to men who would stand and pray in the courtyard and they would pray like this, out loud. Dear God, thank you for making me a Jewish male. Thank you for not making me like that uncircumcised pagan. And most of all, this is historical, I'm not making this up. Most of all, thank you for not making me a woman. I'm serious. This is what the religious rulers would pray out loud in the temple grounds. So Jesus says this. In the first story, let me, who, who's God in the story? The shepherd, right? The shepherd who goes off. Okay, check out who Jesus who would get kicked out of most churches today if he told this story, who he says God is. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found one of my lost coins. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Jesus is ratcheting up these stories. And he's saying, you think you know God? You, You religious rulers, you think you have it all worked together? Well, let me tell you about a shepherd who leaves the righteous to go find the wanderer. Okay, you like that story? Okay, I got another story for you. Let me talk about God as a woman who you are praying and thanking this God for that you are not one. And you come and, you, and what does she do? She loses a coin. Now, a coin isn't like a stupid sheep that just kind of wanders off. It's just kind of like a clueless you know, it, you know, inanimate object. And what does she do? What kind of lengths does she go through to find this coin? She turns her house upside down. And this is something that we all can identify with. Like I have a theory that, that there is like another dimension where like things that are lost go. 
Now, I, I've, I've tried to test this and stuff, but like there's times where, where I'll put something somewhere and I know where I put it because I put it there all the time. And then I'll come back and it's gone to the place of things that are lost. And I know this because I will search everywhere for them. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but I have. You know when you're searching for things, you search in the logical places first, right? Okay, not in my pockets. Then you'll go and you'll, you'll look in your purse or, or in, you know, in, in my man purse, you know, thing, that uh, laptop satchel. It's a purse. And uh, so I'm, you know, I look through all that and it's not there. And I, I know in the back of my mind that it's nowhere because it's in another dimension of the lands of places lost. But, but... You know, so I'm searching, and then you start going past the logical, right? And, and you start, you know, well, maybe it's like in my car. So you go in the car, and you're like, okay, it's not in there. Okay, maybe it fell, you know, beneath, you know, my seat and under the, under the mat, you know, the back thing. So I'm like, okay, and you search, and it's not there. You start going through the garage, and then you start going places that you haven't been. And maybe if you're really neurotic, and if you are, it's good that you're here because we love you. That, you know, you'll go through, and like, you'll like look in the freezer. Like, you would put, you know, like, why would I put it in the freezer? I'm going to check because I've checked everywhere else, and you haven't accepted the truth that there is another dimension where things are lost go, so you think it's still in the physical world, and, and you start searching all of these places. And you know what ultimately happens? It happens to all of us, is that we'll be going back along, and then we'll just see it. It just reappears. Yeah, I know. I don't. What does this have to do with anything? Oh, this has to do with. That's the image that that Jesus is telling us about how much God loves us. That that He's going to check the freezer for. He's going to check the logical places first. Then He's going to check everywhere until He finds us. And when He does find us, that He is going to rejoice. Now, if the Pharisees were not upset enough at this, there was one more story that he wanted to tell. And this is the parable of the lost son. Says Jesus said that a man had two sons and a younger son told his father, I want to share, I want a share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth up between his two sons. Now you got to remember Jesus is telling this to the religious rulers of the day. They were the Jewish religious rulers of the day. In that time, in that culture, what they are hearing is this. A son came up to his father. He says, Father, you have no value to me. Your insight, your wisdom, your guidance has no value to me. The only value you have to me is what you can give me and I do not want to wait until you are dead. So I want it now. In essence, going up to his father and saying, Father, who is, in this story, God, walking up to him and saying, I wish you were dead. All I want is your stuff. Now, you've just gone beyond stupid sheep wandering off coin just sitting there in the place that things are lost. Now you have a willful, belligerent rejection 
of the Father. Jesus is telling these stories. Why? He is trying to illustrate in an entertaining and interesting way the lengths of God's love for us. It says a few days later, it must have been a good few days, huh? Talk about tension that's thick. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. We know in the context of this story and the original writings that he wasted his money on prostitutes and on alcohol and just the party life. So this is the story that Jesus is telling. Son walks up to his father, wish you were dead. God, I wish you were dead. And, so, and I just want your money and your blessings so I can go and squander it on prostitutes and drugs and alcohol and parties. About that time, about the time that the money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him in the fields to feed pigs. Now you got to remember, Jews are not big on ham. It's just one of those things. So this imagery in the story is like, oh wow, a Jewish boy, even as rotten as he is, he is now serving the swine, these unclean animals. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. We are having a picture of a kid who has fallen into the depths of an earthly hell. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So in the mind of the son, that he's sitting there and saying like, wow, I've got to rehearse what I'm going to say. I've got to have this kind of, this, this speech ready. And I'm going to go back to my father. And you could kind of feel the tension if you were quiet enough to feel the tension that happened 2,000 years ago as Jesus was telling this story of the religious leaders thinking, all right, that son's going to come back on his hands and knees and he's going to get it. The father, God, is going to whack him good. So he returned to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. This idea of the father was watching. And he saw him out there. And then, Jesus says, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. 
This, remember, this is a picture of God that Jesus is trying to illustrate to the Pharisees about what God feels about those who, of us who are broken and we are messy. That we were just, if we were dumb and wandered off and we thought something was better and we just kind of went for it, or if we just kind of unintentionally, you know, got lost, or even if we willfully told God that we thought, wish he was dead and went the opposite direction. That we have this picture of this kid coming back and a God who is not going to drop the hammer, but this is the picture of God that we have. That He is waiting and looking and longing and praying that His Son is going to return. And in my mind's eye, I have this, this picture of the Father just sitting there looking down the road and thinking, maybe today, maybe today is the day that my Son is going to return to me. And this idea that maybe He saw somebody in the distance one day and, and they were coming along and He's getting all excited and then He's like, oh, it's the postman. <sighs> all right, maybe tomorrow. He's looking and it's the next day and, and, and somebody's coming and, and he's getting all excited and it's like, ah, oh, it's a census worker. Oh. Then finally, the, this day, the day he's sitting there and he sees another speck in the distance with anticipation. He is longing for the sun to return. He's, he, he doesn't want to get his hope up too high because he'd been disappointed before. And as the sun gets closer and closer, his excitement overcomes him when he realizes that it's truly him. And then he runs to the sun. And in the context of the story, a patriarch, the male head of the household would never run. This would be considered completely undignified. And what we have is Jesus painting a picture of an undignified God who loves us so much, who is willing to live, leave his perch, heaven, to come to us. And I love this next part. After he embraces and kisses him, the son wants to give his speech, right? He's rehearsed it. He's wrote it. Father, I have sinned against both heaven, blah, 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 right? As he's saying this, it's like the father's not even listening to him. He's like so excited that his son is here and he's like giving this boring rehearsed speech and he doesn't even listen and, and in response to it, he says, quick, he says this to his servants, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now he returns to life. He was lost, now he is found. And the best four words in the Bible, so let the party begin. I love this imagery. So everybody's like, woo-woo, let's get this party started, you know, kind of thing. But there's an issue here. Someone's in the field. Who's in the field? 
Wrong. Us. We're in the field working, and God and the Son are doing the Macarena, and we're busting our humps in the field. Meanwhile, the older son who was in the field working, when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. He wasn't invited to the party. Somebody had to pay for the party. I guess it was him. And he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother is back. Oh, that's good news. He's told, and your father has killed the fatted calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was elated. Oh, I misread that. Sorry. Uh, The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, oh, you can just hear the venom. All these years I have slaved, in your Bible, underlined slaved for you, and never once refused to do a single thing you have told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me one goat for a feast with my friends. Who does the son think he is? No, the son thinks he's a servant. The son thinks that he is a slave. His words, I slaved for you. The son thinks that he had to do everything that his father asked not because of love and a relationship, but because he was a slave and he had to. Very important. Then he goes on, he says, Yet, when this son of yours, I love that, not my brother, but this son of yours, I use this kind of language with Shannon, your children (laughs) did this. This son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. And his father said to him, and the father says to us, look, dear princes and princesses, Royal heirs. You have always stayed by me and everything is yours. Everything is yours. You didn't have to ask or wait to be offered to be given a fatted calf because you are part of my family. You are not a slave anymore. Jesus says we are not servants anymore, but he calls us friend. He says, look, we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and he has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Jesus told three stories to say one thing. 
that God will go through any length to be in relationship with the stupid, with the people who just happen to go to the place where things are lost, and even the vile rebellious. That he loves us so much that he will leave the dignity of his post in heaven to come and walk this earth so, and pay the price for our rebellion so that we do not have to, but have the opportunity to be in relationship with him. Will you guys pray with me? Dear Lord, <laughs> you never let us go. You hope and you love and you make allowances for us. God, let us be your agents here on earth to tell people in a compelling, culturally current way about this magnificent love that you have for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.